Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 11th of June, 2023, 9.30 service. Ruth Henton speaking in the series, Learning from the Early Church, The Spirit of Witness. I wonder if you've heard of this chap who's about to appear on the screen. His name is James Partridge. You might have seen him on social media or on the telly. He's a singer and music teacher who has made a name for himself by producing videos of what he calls assembly bangers. Classic songs sung in assemblies back in the day, which take his multitudinous listeners on a journey down memory lane. At different times of year, he comes up with a top 10 of harvest bangers or Christmas bangers or whatever. And he has even taken this phenomenon on tour producing live shows where he and the audience sing along to classics such as Shine Jesus Shine, which we had this morning, and Kumbaya. The reason he's featuring at the start of this talk is because of an assembly banger, which I haven't seen feature in any of his videos, but which I can't help thinking of when it comes to the part of acts we've been studying last week and this week. Perhaps I'm the only one who remembers it, but I think it might ring bells with others of a certain age, and it clearly recounts the story of the preceding chapter in Acts to today's passage, where Peter and John heal a lame beggar. Have a listen and see if it sounds familiar, and do join in if it does. Peter and John went to pray, they met a lame man on the way. He asked for arms and held out his palms, and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Oh, good. I had a few familiar people who were familiar with it as well. It wasn't a solo, so that's good news. What struck me 40 or so years on from singing that song at primary school was that the writer of that song decided to just tell the story of Acts chapter 3 with all its joy and positivity and walking and leaping and shied away from the action of the second, of, sorry, of the option of a second verse based on our reading today from Acts chapter 4, where reality sets in. I think they actually missed a trick though, because there's lots to learn from the first 22 verses of Acts chapter 4. So let's take a closer look. After the miraculous healing of the lame beggar, Peter capitalises on the astonishment and curiosity of the crowd that has gathered to preach about Jesus' resurrection and the healing and wholeness available to those who put their faith and trust in him. Very many who heard this message responded, and the number of men who believed, not counting the women and children, has now grown to about 5,000. But there are others who are completely unimpressed with Peter's words, namely the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. 
This is the first sign of trouble and opposition for the early church since its inauguration at Pentecost. The honeymoon period is over, and any thought that the coming of the Holy Spirit would mean an easy ride without fear of persecution or difficulty is about to be blown out of the water. They shouldn't have been surprised that this was the case, because as we heard in our first reading in John 15, Jesus predicted to them that this would be the case. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. These current haters and persecutors include the captain of the temple guard, who was second only in authority to the chief priest and was like a sheriff whose role was to maintain both peace and orthodoxy in the temple courts. He is joined by priests and Sadducees. Sadducees were the controlling group in both the temple and also the Sanhedrin, which we will come across shortly. They were a socially elite faction, which held strict views on a number of issues, including completely rejecting the doctrine of resurrection. They had also been key players in the trial and subsequent execution of Jesus, so it's no wonder that Peter's sermon has wound them up so much. As it says in verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The rest of the crowd are bowled over by the miracle they have seen and are rejoicing with the lame beggar who is now able to walk and even leap in his praise of God. But the hard hearts of the Sadducees and the rest won't allow them to rejoice and celebrate. They just want to quieten Peter and John ASAP. Ideally, they want to drag them in front of the Sanhedrin then and there, but because it is getting late, it will need to wait till the next morning, so they are taken to jail instead. The Sanhedrin was an assembly or council made up of Jewish elders, which acted as a court or tribunal in both religious and secular matters. As I already mentioned, at the time of our passage, the Sadducees had majority representation amongst the elders which formed the Sanhedrin, so they would have felt confident to get their way in silencing Peter and John's preaching. Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin the following morning. If we think back just a matter of weeks to the Peter we see on the night of Jesus' arrest, the Peter who can't even bring himself to admit to knowing Jesus and who betrays his Lord three times before the cockerel crows. What a striking and dramatic change we see in the confidence with which he addresses this prestigious council of elders. Verse 8 gives us a clear pointer as to the reason for this turnaround where it says that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit-filled Peter gives a clear gospel message. 
stating that the lame man has been healed by the name of Jesus, who the Sanhedrin had crucified, but who God raised from the dead. Quoting Psalm 118, he tells them that the stone they rejected has become the cornerstone and that salvation can be found through no one else but Jesus. As the commentator John Stott has written of this passage, the Sadducees could arrest the apostles, but not the gospel. In fact, the members of the Sanhedrin are shocked by the courage of Peter and John and the clarity and boldness of speech displayed by those who have not been trained or schooled as a rabbi. And as the apostles have the ultimate visual aid there with them in the form of the healed beggar, they cannot think of anything to say in return. Instead, they ask Peter and John to withdraw while they confer. They decide that they cannot do anything to deny such a miraculous sign which has been witnessed by so many. So they come to the conclusion that all they can do is tell Peter and John to stop their preaching from now on. Peter and John are called back in and issued with this edict. But they reply with a question, asking the elders whether they should listen to their commands or rather to God's. Their decision, they conclude, is that we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The Sanhedrin try a few more threats, but don't feel they can punish them in the midst of all the people praising God because of the miraculous healing of the beggar. So Peter and John are released. Fresh from jail and in the face of threats from some of the most important Jewish elders, Peter and John say, we cannot help speaking about Jesus. But what about us? Do we feel the same way when we face so much less in the way of persecution than the apostles? In his commentary on this passage on the Bible.org website, Stephen J. Cole writes, While Peter and John had to be commanded to stop speaking, most of us need to be reminded to start speaking to others about Jesus Christ, as we are instructed to do. Many Christians think that Jesus' great commission was really the great suggestion, or that it only applies to those called into missionary work. But every believer should be able to say with Peter and John, even under the threat of persecution, I cannot stop speaking about what I have seen and heard. If we are prone to be timid witnesses for Christ, we should pray that the Lord would give us the confident boldness that we need to speak out for Christ, even if we suffer for it. Our topic today reminds us that the Holy Spirit, amongst so many facets of his empowering and enabling, is the spirit of witness. Jesus also pointed to this in our reading from John 15. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. 
So it is right that we should ask the spirit of witness to give us the confidence and boldness we need. Even the great witness and testifier, Paul, speaks of needing prayer about this in chapter 6 of his letter to the Ephesians. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. The word translated as courage in the NIV translation of our passage from Acts 4 in verse 13, which is also translated as confidence in several other versions, is the same word repeated twice by Paul in that prayer request, translated there as fearlessly. If Paul had the need for fearless, courageous confidence on his prayer list, I reckon that's a sign that we need to add it to ours too. But what practical applications can we learn from Peter and John that we can put into practice alongside asking for the help of the spirit of witness? Firstly, their lives had been changed by Jesus. As the Sanhedrin notice, these were unschooled and ordinary men but they are able to address the most important of Jewish elders articulately and with boldness. Their humdrum lives had been transformed by encountering Jesus. As Paul writes in Romans 12, we too are to be transformed. We are to have our minds and attitudes renewed so that we approach the issues of the world around us with a different perspective with different standards. Do people notice that difference in our lives? Secondly, they learned from Jesus. Peter and John had been privileged to spend the best part of three years with Jesus, being able to learn from him. He taught them directly in passages like the Sermon on the Mount. He taught them in parables. He taught them in conversation. He taught them by example. They didn't always catch on immediately and they also made some awful blunders along the way. But enough has obviously rubbed off in the end. Although we aren't privileged to have that first-hand experience, we have wonderful accounts of Jesus' life and teaching in the Gospels. We have the Old Testament which points to Jesus and upon which Jesus' own teaching was founded. We have the rest of the New Testament, which helps us apply Jesus' teaching to our own situations. And we have the Holy Spirit to help us interpret and understand it. We learn from Jesus by reading the Bible regularly, just as Peter and John saw Jesus regularly, and by putting what we read into practice. Thirdly, they lived like Jesus. Obviously, having spent three years living in close proximity to Jesus meant that they had learned from him. 
but it also meant that they had gradually come to live like him. We often pick up habits from our friends or family, don't we? Well, Peter and John didn't just pick up a few habits. They adopted Jesus' whole lifestyle. They became compassionate. They chose to live simply. They lived in unity. They spoke out against injustice. They tried to help people. In short, they witnessed by their lives as well as their words. They hadn't just tacked Jesus things onto their own way of living. No, they wholly devoted themselves to living like Jesus, just as he had called them to do. In Philippians 2 verse 5, Paul challenges us, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. We so often focus on trying to change our behaviour, but that's a waste of time until we have allowed our attitudes to be transformed. We must allow the Holy Spirit to transform us from within so that our words and actions gradually become more Christ-like. Fourthly, they spoke with Jesus. Our human relationships wouldn't get very far if we didn't spend time talking with one another, would they? We talk about how things are going, we share news, we share feelings, we ask for advice, we make plans, and so much more. Peter and John talked with Jesus while he was physically with them, and then, after he had returned to his father, they talked with him in prayer. In the book of Acts, Luke is at pains to emphasise the prayer life of the disciples and the members of the early church. Prayer is vitally important for us as Christians, both personal prayer and corporate. The hymn writer James Montgomery describes it as the Christian's vital breath. It's how we ask Jesus for things, how we express our feelings to him, how we gain strength, how we thank him, how we listen to his spirit, how we build our relationship with him. If we're at all serious about following Jesus and being distinctive for him, it's something we cannot afford to neglect. Then fifthly, they spoke about Jesus. This is what got them into trouble in the first place. Being with Jesus had dramatically changed their lives and they knew that everyone needed to hear his message. So we shouldn't be surprised that when told by the Sanhedrin to stop talking about Jesus, they reply, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They constantly wanted to tell other people about the greatest thing that had ever happened to them. When something special happens to us, like getting engaged or buying a house or having a baby or going on our dream holiday or even getting a new kitchen, what do we do? We tell other people, or at least put it on Facebook. Nothing better or more exciting or more significant than becoming a Christian will ever happen to us. And what's more, 
people have a far greater need to hear the good news about Jesus than they do about our new kitchen or dream holiday. We must let people know about the difference Jesus makes to our life. Thinking back to that assembly banger I introduced you to or reminded you of at the start of this talk, I have come to the conclusion that the writer definitely missed a trick by not writing a second verse based on our passage from Acts chapter 4. So I've had a go at writing one myself. See what you think and please join in. Peter and John went to jail. The Sadducees hoped they would fail. But 5,000 believed and salvation received. And this is what Peter did say. Jesus who died at your hand is risen just as God had planned. You tell us to stop, but God's will comes out top and the spirit will help us to stand. They went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God. You tell us to stop, but God's will comes out top and the spirit will help us to stand. Amen. Amen.